Good morning. How you doing? Congratulations. You got up. You know, when we started this or started putting the like the plan together for this, we we're like, okay, well, like no one come. Will five guys come? So you came. That's awesome. So so glad to have you. And there's a couple ground rules as I'm talking. If you run out of coffee, you are welcome to get up and get more coffee. I don't consider that rude. I consider that a necessity. I would rather you get more coffee than uh, fall asleep as uh, you're sitting there staring at me. That would have been, that would be way more awkward. So glad to have you today. And uh, as we kick off with uh, Man Challenge, this is a brand new thing. So congratulations. You know, sometimes you bump into old people around here and they're like, I was here in 1959. And you're like, well, I wasn't. But now you can say, I was there when Man Challenge started. And that's going to be pretty exciting. That'll be some bragging rights for you with your kids someday, I think. Not because... This is going to be um, such a, a revolution in the church, but I think this will be revolutionary for those of us who are part of it. I think something really powerful happens when guys get together. And at our church, we do a good job of providing opportunity for more mature men to gather together. But some of you have tried some of those groups, and you're like, I like them, but it just doesn't seem like the right fit. And, uh, and so to pull together guys in their 30s and 40s, and by the way, invite your friends, and if, and if a guy is like, Somewhere in his 50s, like, hey, can I come? It's fine. We're not going to card guys at the door. And if you have a friend who's in his 20s, by all means, we have, we have uh, at least one person in his 20s, but he's pretty mature for his age. So, uh, so all that to say, by saying, hey, this is a group for 30s and 40s, it was a way of letting our more mature crowd know, like, hey, this isn't one more Bible study for you to come to. Because a lot of those guys, I'm friends with them, a lot of them come to all the studies we do. So uh, anyhow, as I get started, here's um, just some ground rules, how to get the most out of Man Challenge. As, uh, as you think about how to like, experience this at its greatest depth, is my encouragement is to be here every week. We are going to record them and podcast them, for, so if you're traveling or you're sick or something happens and you cannot be here, then listen online so that you know what you are missing. Uh, around tables, participate with the discussions. There's going to be discussion questions. My promise to you is I'm going to only teach for a part of it, and then there's going to be a place for discussion. So if you're at a particularly small table and want to merge with others, that's fine. If you want to just stay in your table, some of you have come already as friends who know each other and you want to circle up, that's great. But make sure that discussion time is there for your benefit. So participate in the discussion. Get to know the other guys around the table. If you, if you came here all by yourself, that took a lot of courage. I know as a man, it's my wife who makes me do things where I don't necessarily know people, and I'm an extrovert. So if you came and you're like, well, I'll just see how it goes. Well, invest in the guys around you. Get to know them. Get to know what makes them tick. Uh, also, pray that God would do something in you. That through this process, over the next several weeks, that God would, God would open up your heart, your mind, challenge you in the way that he wants to challenge you. And then, as I mentioned, commit to being part of Man Challenge. We're going to do a 12-week run before, between now and Christmas. So the only day we're planning to take off is Thanksgiving Day, okay? Otherwise, we'll be here. So from here, mark it out, 12 more weeks, we're here. Then we'll take a break at Christmas. So even if today you're like, oh, I kind of, I'm not sure. You get home and if you're married and your wife says, how'd it go? And you're like, oh, I'm not sure. Then commit to being here for the next 11 weeks. 
because that not sure can turn into something really firm and exciting for you. But often the first time you try something out, you're like, oh gosh, I'm not sure. That's why gyms can oversell membership based upon uh, how much room they really have because they know one or two times in people are like, well, that wasn't working after that one workout. I didn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger did in the 1980s. I look like he looks like now. <laughs> so, which actually is pretty fabulous, truth be told. He's in better shape than I am. So here's my promise to you. This time is going to be practical. It is going to be biblical, meaning we're going to open up God's word and explore what he has to say. And this will be one hour. So one way or another at 745, I'll interrupt, even if you're in a great discussion at your table. You don't have to be afraid if you're in a discussion and someone at the table is just sort of the long talker. You don't have to like go, uh-oh, are we going to get out of here on time? Because I know you got to get to work. A lot of you have to get to work. If you don't have to get to work and uh, you're having a great discussion, then you can all just take it on to a breakfast place from here or to Stella Nova or to Starbucks because the teenagers come in right after us and they will kick us out. They are some mean old people. So, uh, no, actually, they are not. They're wonderful, wonderful people. But they have reminded me, hey, we use that after 8. And I told them we're out of here by 745. So... All right, that's where we're at. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to just kind of kick into this material. Lord, it is good as men to gather together. It's a privilege. Uh, Lord, just thank you for the guys that um, carved out, carved out uh, the morning to be here. And I pray that you'd give us all courage to enter into the fray of this material so that we, as we explore what it means to be a man in our culture, be a man in the workplace, a, a man of God in our homes or in our relationships, Lord, Give us the courage to wade into that because some of those conversations, Lord, as you know better than we know, are uncomfortable. And so help us be the kind of men that you have framed us to be. And we trust you with it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you like handouts, which it really helps at this hour of day, there are handouts back there. So if you didn't get one, feel free to grab one. There's pens back there that's not embarrassing to go. So I'll let you do that. And uh, that way, if you're like me, it's nice to fill in the blank. It's like breadcrumbs along the trail. I appreciate it when Marty does that on Sunday mornings here. And at this hour of day, it's a necessity. So we're going to roll through this material pretty quickly in order to give you discussion time. And uh, let me have a sip of my coffee. All right. So here we go. This is the mess we are in. Talking about masculinity, manhood in our current culture. This is the mess we're in. No one agrees what it means to be a man. Am I correct? When you, if you were to poll our culture and ask our culture, what does manliness look like? What is a good man? We would get all kinds of definitions, wouldn't we? I mean, some people would say he's a sexy guy or a tough guy or he's caring or he's cool or he's funny and great sense of humor or he's serious. He's real social or he's real quiet. All of those would be descriptors based upon your personal opinion. Some, some people would say a man is trendy. My grandfather was indifferent to trends. He was wearing polyester way past its prime. Uh, some, some will say a man is, uh, there's that classic outdoorsman kind of look. You know, there's the, the guy who says, I know I'm a man because I could live off the land. And I can live off an outlet mall. Okay, as a man, but I can't live off the land. I like being outside, but uh, in fact, uh, over um, over a couple 
couple of weeks back, there was an event here called the Beast Feast. Any of you make it to the Beast Feast? And I made a joke at the very end that I was kind of teased because the only camouflage I own comes from the Gap. And, uh, and that I'm a little more like I like going outdoors, but I'm not much of an outdoorsman. And I, I joked with a couple of my friends afterwards. I'm like, everybody in the other, there were hundreds of men. They were like, yeah, we already know that. So, you know, it was, it was kind of hurtful. I was expecting guys to be like, no, you, you look like the kind of guy that lives outdoors. And uh, that, but what does it mean to me? Is it a outdoors? Is it, is it, a, is a real man a successful guy, a confident guy? Is it a guy who knows how to change the oil in the car? Or the guy who knows where the, re, where the nearest oil change establishment is for the best price, you know? Um, even think about this. Even in our culture today, it used to be at least agreed upon that a man at least contained on his physical body certain sexual organs that were the giveaway of manhood. And even today, that's up for debate. Controversial, even today. So that's created a massive amount of confusion about being a man. And when a man is confused, he makes matters worse. That's just one of the truths. When a guy, when when we are confused about what a man is, we're confused. You look at the Me Too movement. Sad story after sad story is coming out of men who abused uh, a relationship and abused women in the process of that relationship. You know, have you noticed that in all the Me Too storytelling, there's almost no guys that have come forward and said, a woman did this to me. It's not part of the story. I know it happens, but it's it's... The, if there is a violent crime to be committed, it is 90% men that commit the violent crime. If there's some sort of assault, sexual or otherwise, vast majority of those who do the assaulting are not women, they are men. If, there's a, if someone's arrested for a DUI, almost every time it's a dude, not a lady. And so confused men act in ways that make things worse. And number three, if you're into kind of the filling in the blanks, there is no big vision driving men forward. The culture we're in right now, there is no big vision. Think about what would, what would you say is the vision. That's something you could talk about at your tables afterwards. But if you were to say, I think this is the vision of masculinity. There is no vision. And a guy who doesn't have a compelling vision of what it means to be a man, he's going to aim low. He's going to find himself in the grouping of friends who will be the lowest common denominator for him. At least most of us will. There are a few exceptional guys out there, and some of you are those guys who are like, I always find a group of people that raise the bar around me. But a guy who doesn't have a definition of what it means to be a man, he is going to find himself in a very comfortable environment. And so, you know, are, what, what does it mean to be valiant or a, or a provider? Is there any such thing as nobility? A guy without a vision for those sorts of things is going to act in accordance to the lack of that vision. And so without a compelling vision, men settle in or play games. Many a guy is, uh, especially in our younger era, many a guy is an excellent, excellent marksman, and he's never shot a real gun. It's always been on video games. My son uh, was a championship bowler on the Wii when he was like eight years old, and he wanted, he begged to go bowling, so he would... So we took him real bowling, and he discovered real bowling is not wee bowling. Very disappointing. And, uh, and so many have, without that compelling vision, they have literally started to play games, or they have just settled into something much lower than what they should be expecting of themselves. You know, one theory is interesting. I read an article, one theory of the popularity of the Fifty Shades of Grey 
book series and movie series which is targeted to women about a guy who is physically harmful in a sexual way to a very vulnerable woman. The basic story, if you don't know, of Fifty Shades of Grey is a very wealthy guy who is able to manipulate a woman into his bedchamber, which happens to have whips and chains and all sorts of nasty stuff in it. And for some reason, if you would have told me 20 years ago, women will buy this like hotcakes. I would have. I, I was on an airplane next to about a 70-year-old woman, and she was reading Fifty Shades of Grey. And I, I was uncomfortable for her. I'm like, put a book cover over that thing, you know? Find a nice Amish romance picture and put it on there. You're an old lady. You shouldn't be reading that. But one of the theories for the vast popularity of this is that women are so frustrated at milquetoast, mamsy-pamsy guys that, that they've actually turned to almost a fantasy where the guy at least knows what he wants, even if what he wants is abusive to the woman. Isn't that weird? And so here we are in our culture, and that's why, uh, just to kind of, you can put an asterisk and write this down, the Bible is our guide. The Bible is our guide that will cut through all that haze. That's not a blank, but you can write that down. The Bible is our guide. It will help us cut through the haze. It'll help us with the fog. It'll help lift the cloud. It'll help us get clear about what it means to be a man. Whereas culture is always shifting, the scriptures never shift. They're, they're the most ancient of literature still in print. And they still have relevance today. You can, I started reading uh, Marcus Aurelius's uh, uh, sort of, it's a diary, but it's really the Bible of Stoicism. It's one of the Harvard classics, and it's very interesting. He was one of the last halfway decent emperors in the Roman Empire, and it's basically his version of how to be a tough person. And I started reading it because it's a classic, and I got partway in, and I'm like, I can't do this. This is impossible. There were some things I underlined, but by and large, this 2,000-year-old or 1,800-year-old book of Marcus Aurelius's was only mildly helpful. The weird part is when you read something that was written 2,000 years ago in the New Testament, you go, I can't explain why, but that really is helpful. That actually speaks to my life. It challenges me. It encourages me. It kicks me in the butt or someplace else. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is, this is helpful. And so that by the Bible is what we're going to turn to. It's, it's timeless, it's inspired, it's true, it's tested. So before we turn to that, I just want to run through, especially for those of you who really like to fill in your blanks, there's the how did we get here. And uh, one, of the, one of the things it says is golden era, and you could say there is no golden era. This to me is one of the most refreshing realities of being a man. Because in my younger years, I, I longed to get to some golden era. I grew up in the 1980s, and in the 1980s, there was a revival of interest in the 1950s, and I was constantly like, oh, I wish I could live in the 50s. They had cool cars and cool music, and that would have been really neat. And I told my history teacher, Mr. Vieira, I was like, man, we have that. The 50s were awesome. And he said, unless you were black. He was black. He's like, trust me, I lived through the 50s. They weren't very good for me. And I was like, oh, man, even the golden era, you have to, like, get very specific who and what you are in the golden era. But there is no golden era. In fact, the earliest story, it's recorded in the scripture, but it's actually one of the most ancient stories ever told that's been recorded, is about a guy who blames his wife for a mistake he made. It's the story of Adam and Eve. He blames God and the woman instead of taking responsibility. That's the first story of masculinity in the Bible. If there was a golden era, that was the golden era. And he blew it. 
And then the next story of masculinity is about his two sons, and it's a story of fratricide where one son kills the other son. The brother kills the brother. That's in the Bible. First story. So I think what that was is like God telegraphing to us. Don't look back in some sort of yearning, longing way. The, the, the past can inform you, but don't think you can get in the time machine and live in a happier time. You cannot. It was always tough. And what it meant to be a man was always under duress. Um, just a real brief history of manhood. By the way, I've adapted some of this material from, uh, from a guy named Robert Lewis, Men's Fraternity. That's where some of this material comes from, not all of it. But uh, brief history of manhood. Uh, right until, this is fascinating, there wasn't a whole lot changed in culture of growing up and learning how to be a man. Not much changed until about 300 years ago. At about 300 years ago, there was a big shift in the Industrial Revolution. And dad left the farm or the blacksmith shop or quit making barrels out, you know, behind his house. And he moved and started working in a factory somewhere, in an office somewhere, in some sort of uh, place away from the home. Now, that is a major revolution in learning to be a man. Because up until that point, up until about 300 years ago, a dude would just grow up, boy would grow up by his dad's apron in the blacksmith shop or the bakery, or uh, on the farm, or learning how to shoe horses. They dig up remains of um, children who passed away in the early days of the Roman Empire. So 2,000 years ago, about the time the New Testament was being written. And what they discovered is a lot of those small children who died in their youth, their bones are stressed out, meaning that the archaeologists and the anthropologists say, these children were working really hard. So... What was happening back then is kids were working. There wasn't playtime like today. And so little kid, no matter how young he was, he was working alongside dad, hauling stuff, moving stuff, building stuff. But in the process, he was kind of being apprenticed by dad. So he was around dad all the time. Fast forward to today where dad goes away to the office or goes away to the field or something and he's away from the kid. The kid is learning from a daycare provider a school. I don't know about you if you have kids in elementary school, but almost all the teachers my son has had, except for one, was a female. Not one thing against women and women teachers. But I remember when Jack was, we lived in California for a while, and uh, he got in trouble one day because he was on the playground with a bunch of his buddies because they were playing shooty fingers. And, uh, you know, like all, most of us did at some point or another, you know, played toy guns or whatever, and they were going around and they were playing shooty fingers. And he got hauled into the principal's office, a stern talking to that such violent uh, behavior was inappropriate in the school. So I get home and he's like sitting on the couch and I, I asked Karen, I'm like, what, what happened? She goes, he got in big trouble today. I said, why? He was playing shooty fingers. I'm like, did he find a gun? Did he shoot someone? What, what are you talking about? Shooty fingers. Well, he was playing shooty fingers and the school said, that's not allowed. So I sat down next to my son, and I said, Jack, since leaving Kentucky and moving to California, we're surrounded by communists. <laughs> they want to teach you how to be a wuss. And so you can't even play make-believe shooty fingers, where you know you're not hurting each other, you're not playing with real weapons, but because uh, these people here have lost their minds, don't play shooty fingers in front of them. Play it in the yard, I don't really care. <laughs> that was a real, and my wife was there, she was like, oh, don't say that. I'm like, no, no, I want this boy to grow up like an 
American. I want, I want him to grow up. I don't want, I don't want him growing up a Californian. There's a reason we don't live there anymore. But, but, but that, that is just a little snapshot of what's happened in our culture. So talk about confusion for a boy. I mean, boys have played warrior on the playground since boys were born. That is as old as the hill. And sometimes they accidentally hurt each other, and sometimes on purpose they hurt each other. But that's part, that, that actually shaping that type of masculinity, giving boundaries to that type of masculinity, teaching that type of masculinity, that's totally appropriate. But what's happened is, is men haven't been around to, to even guard their impressionable sons at time, and it, what it's done is it's, it's created some problems for those boys as they've grown up. And so uh, moving on to how the 20th century has made things better and worse, uh, as, you, know, you could argue we have more leisure time, which means our kids have more leisure time. Uh, I, I remember from my earliest days having a job, and my kids, I've had to find jobs for them because there's almost no work for them to be had. And it's almost expected for them to have leisure time. By the time I was 14, I had learned to repair Kirby vacuum cleaners, these high-end vacuums that people would repair. And so I was, like, repairing bearings, bearing joints and motors and fan housings and all this stuff, 14, 15 years of age, just to make some cash under the table. The guy went to my church, and he's like, let's, uh, let's leave the government out of this. I'll just slip you some cash. Real godly dude. By the way, the government figured it out. Poor guy ended up bankrupt because the government's like, hey, wait, you haven't paid any taxes. You live in a beautiful house. Look at that car you drive. We want our share now. So it ended up working out for the government. Don't worry. <laughs> government always finds out. Them and Baskin Robbins. So, uh, so, but as the 20th century came on, uh, children increasingly became a focus. It's great to be a kid in the 20th and the 21st century. You know, it wasn't so great a few generations back, but it's great now. Dad had more focus time on the kids, and, uh, but as a result, dad became vicarious in his living through his kids, all the things that, and you may catch yourself doing this, all the things you wish you would have done, now you want your kids to do, you might not have been good at a sport, you want them good at a sport, you may not have been musical, you want them musical, so it's not for their well-being and their self-discipline, it's really something that you're doing, that they're living, you're living through them, and so that's part of the 20th century, there's some good parts to it, we began to see women as more than just for sex and food and home life. I mean, there, there was more education that, hey, women have something to contribute. They have minds. God's crafted them to actually do something more than serve our needs. That was a big change. My parents have been married over 50 years. Dad's in his 80s. He dings his coffee cup, and Mom goes and fills it. My wife said, if you ever do that, <laughs> you will wear the coffee pot. I tried it once. She didn't wear, make me wear the, the coffee pot, but she, she didn't get my coffee. You know, and, uh, and along the way, because of sort of we understood ourselves better, we, we, we began to realize, boy, there are vast differences between men and women. And uh, my wife, uh, a couple years back, we were going through some uh, tensions with work. I, I was working, this is back in California, and, uh, and she said, you know, you are not dealing with this problem. You are coping with it. You just compartmentalized everything. And I said, well, thank you. Well, I appreciate that. I thought it was a compliment. And she's like, no, that's not good. You'll have a stroke. I'm like, well, at least I'll be out of this job. You know, <laughs> Could be worse. you have a heart attack. Man, I'm modern medicine. I'll probably survive it, you know. But my general attitude was, and even now, there's still this res little residual like, 
Uh, she'll say it from time to time, you are so good at compartmentalizing. And, and deep down inside, I'm gratified to know that. <laughs> but, but part of, of the era we live in is realizing, you know, there, there, there's a good part to that and a not so good part to that. And so uh, I'll just leave uh, so that we can get into the Bible here. There's, there's some obvious way media shapes us. Media shapes our view of masculinity. Uh, film and TV have just initiated all kinds of stereotypes from the bumbling idiot guy to the sensitive guy to the, the, uh, the other day my eldest daughter, before she went away to college, wanted to watch um, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Have any of you endured that film? Uh, I mean, watched it with great delight. It was written by a woman for women, and so the guys in it are all women who are dressed like men. So even the guy who's like ends up marrying Tula at the end, he's like, whatever you want. I like you. I like whatever you want. And I'm like, you would not be employed. You know, you're like, there's a, there, it's fun to watch, but media shapes it. So that, then uh, even popular today is the shows like The Bachelor and Bachelorette. So our choices. I mean, a hugely popular show is that we are kings who get to choose who is part of our harem for the weekend. That's one aspect if it's The Bachelor. If it's The Bachelorette, we're pawns in some woman's fantasy. And, and so that's like one of the most popular shows. Some of you might have seen it. But it is shaping opinions about masculinity and about femininity. And then, of course... I won't even spend any time on it. The internet has made hardcore pornography accessible like no other time in history. And it's given us really bad ideas of what sex is all about. It's, it actually, they've even, they even acknowledged, like if you read the articles about pornography featuring like interviews with filmmakers, they'll acknowledge like, well, we do things for camera angles, not for comfort. Like the, the joke of it even in their own industry is that doesn't feel good for the people doing that stuff. But it's arousing to watch. So then we, as humans who see it, are like, well, I should probably try it that way. But it doesn't feel good for the actors. And then humans who try it are disappointed because their bedchamber isn't like a porn video. But it's not good in the porn video. It's a fantasy. It's sort of like if a guy was like, I always wanted to learn to fly, so I'm watching a lot of Star Wars to get some tips from uh, Luke Skywalker and that X-Wing. You know, I, I think I do this and the plane turns or something. Like, you would go, well, that's stupid. Why would you think that? But that's, that's pornography's on that same scale as Star Wars as far as this is fantasy to it. All right, so get us, I want to get us into God's Word because time is eroding, and I told you I was going to give you some time to talk. So um, we're going to look at Philippians' first chapter. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can, you can turn there. And we're going to read something written by a guy named Paul. He was a church leader. He was an apostle. If you've been around the church, you've heard Paul, 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 Paul. But sometimes when we get into the Bible, we just assume that the people who wrote parts of the Bible were, uh, you know, soft people who were, uh, who, who were kind of milquetoast. The Apostle Paul was a man's man. He would stand out in any room as a man's man. I don't mean he would look like Mel Gibson from The Gladiator, but I'm saying, like, the guy could take a beating, and then he would get back up, and he'd go right back to work. He did it. One time they stoned him, left him for dead. And he like shook it off, went back into town, went back to work. That's a true story that's in the Bible. Another time, he was shipwrecked, and in the process of the ship going down, he was directing the hundreds of people how to get to shore. They get to shore, and everyone's thankful, and then a snake bites him. And everyone's like, well, gods hate him because the snake bit him. He shook the snake off in the fire, and he just sat down and apparently started singing Kumbaya or something like that. I mean, this is a guy who, while sitting in a prison... 
is defending his faith constantly before people, not begging for freedom. And then, and then this gets even better, then while he's in prison, he says, you know, I, I want to I talk to the emperor about my case. I appeal to the emperor, which was his right as a Roman citizen. The emperor he appealed to is a guy named Nero, who all of history acknowledges is a complete nutcase, very dangerous man. And he's like, I'd like to talk to Nero about my faith. And so he ends up in Rome. That's the context of this guy. I just want you to know that because sometimes you get into reading some of the scripture and you're like, is this guy, is this a guy I could look up to? I think for every one of us in this room, if we met Paul, we'd go, he's the manliest, toughest guy I think I've ever met. Okay, so here we go. Uh, this Philippians 1, 6, uh, 6 through 11. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. Because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since, since I have in you my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how long I, how I long for all of you with an affection of Jesus Christ. See, that's why, that's why I explained who this guy was, because you read something like that, and you're like, oh, this is a guy who sends Valentines and sends candy to people. <laughs> he is not that guy. He is, he is a man's man who is fully in touch with who he is and who God made him to be. He knows what it means to be a man of God. So he can actually speak in like this affectionate poetic language and in the tough language, too. And then he... He gets into a sort of prayer for them, but this is a challenging prayer. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so this is, there's some good news for modern man here. First of all, if you look back at verse 6, when he says that I'm um, confident of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion. He's saying this whole thing, this whole thing started as a process. In other words, that, if you're into filling in the blanks, this whole thing is a process. Growing as a man is a process. It, there isn't a graduation ceremony. There isn't a diploma you get. You don't hit a certain age. Some of us grew up in a home that's like, at 18, you're a man. In old Jewish customs, at 13, you were considered a man, and they'd have a big party and say, welcome to manhood. And so you don't automatically become a man. This is a process. God started it. What, what Paul said is he who began the good work in you. In other words, God started this work in you. He will carry it to completion. In other words, God will finish it. And what's interesting here is the you. When he says, God, I'm confident in this, he who began a good work in you. Or as they used to say in Louisville, where I lived for five and a half years, y'all, you all. They would say you all. Further south, I think here we say y'all. Uh, but it was in, oh, I grew up in Michigan. Paul would say you guys. God who began a good work in you guys. And so why that matters is God expects us to rely on other men. God expects us to rely on other men. There's this embedded in this verse, and some of you have heard that verse before. It's very popular if you grew up in the church to hear this verse. And a lot of people will claim it as their own verse, like, God, who began a good work in me, he's faithful and just, he'll, he'll carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus for me. And that's not, Paul's not writing that to an individual. He's writing this to a community of people. And so it is for us, as we, as we hear those words, is God who began the good work 
in us. And this is why we need other men, because other men are part of the process. Well, I want to scroll through from this Philippians passage some qualities of a man, and then we'll flip over into discussion time. And so we'll just kind of scroll through these real quick. These are qualities of man that we find in Paul's prayer. He says um, in his prayer, he says, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge. And that first fill in the blank is uh, the qualities of man is a knowledge of God. When Paul says knowledge, the word he uses there for knowledge in the old language was a technical term, and in the New Testament, it's always used of knowledge of God. In other words, what Paul's saying is, my prayer for you is that your genuine, heartfelt, truth-filled knowledge of the Holy One would overflow in your life, that you would understand who God is, you would understand what he expects of you. This is a starting place for the Philippian community. It's a starting place for us. If we're on a quest of what does it mean to be a man in a culture that's totally messed up the definition of what it means to be a man, if that's true, it starts with a real, genuine knowledge of God. A, a, what, what would have been called in ages past uh, someone who's genuinely converted. We don't use that term anymore. I mean, it wouldn't be very popular if, like, on a Sunday morning, we welcome people. And then if you're a new here, we hope you convert at some point today. You know, that would be, for some people, they'd be like, oh, that's awkward, and where's the doors? But that's really what, what Paul's getting at, is there's, like, a full and complete turnaround. And so that knowledge of God is, is where it starts with. And then he shifts it to overflowing in insight or Insight concerning people. That word is, is interesting because it always has some connotation in the New Testament with tact with people. In other words, what Paul seems to be saying right away is, here's my prayer for you, that you would be overflowing in, who, in knowledge of God. So that would be a genuine facet to your life. And alongside it, you would really get people. You would understand people. You, you would have a, an insight with people. You would know what makes them tick. You would know. Now, here's why this matters is that that insight with people, this is part of, of the process of being a man in our culture, understanding other people. It's not about us. It's not just a selfish thing. It's about, it's about an awareness of the people around us, the people we might lead at work or that lead us at work, in our homes, in our friendship circles. That insight concerning people. As, as men, we have to almost adjust. I've, I've, uh, I've been looking for a new car and I've noticed uh, since, I, uh, since I bought my car, the technology has increased dramatically. Some of you already know this. There are, um, there are cars uh, that have dials on them for like sport mode, uh, street fighting mode, uh, super fast mode, snow mode, tornado mode, or whatever. You know, there's dials and they have all this thing and it, like, it impacts how you handle, how the car handles something. That's how we have to be with people. We have to be like, okay, this person is a little bit crazy. Uh, this person is very wounded and hurt. Uh, this person is my child and very young and immature. You know, this is my wife. Don't say the wrong thing. I want a really good weekend. You know, it's, uh, but you have, di- so it's insight with people is what Paul says. And then he says, discerning what is best. Discerning what is best. Now, here's what's fascinating. This is a word in ancient times that was used to determine whether currency was counterfeit or not. This was the type of, this word, discerning what is best, was used of a metallurgist when you'd go to, you worked a mine, and then you'd come out and you'd be like, look, I got gold. And then the metallurgist would test it all and go, 
unfortunately, you got fool's gold, that ain't gold. Or they would go, congratulations, this is going to be a good, good month for you. And so it is, it is discerning what is true, but then in the process, embracing what is best. And so think about what Paul was meaning here, is that he's saying, I, I hope that you discern what's best. And he was using it in this broad-scale term, discerning the best use of your time, discerning the best use of your money, d- d- discerning what's the best thing to say yes to, and discerning what's the best thing to say no to. You, you all, congratulations, discern what was best. It was best to say no to the alarm clock and hit snooze one more time, and you got out of bed. And so discerning what is best, deciding what is worth fighting for and dying for. Because some guys plant their battle flag on all the wrong hills. And so you've got to discern what's best. Four is that uh, we ought to be men who are pure, is how Paul put it, is that the, it's best and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ Jesus. And pure and blameless, together, that's four and five. Pure is this positive characteristic. This is the who you are when nobody's looking. When no one can see your internet history, it's the type of person you are, the proactive side. It is, it is that the through and through you are a person of integrity and that integrity, that wholeness speaks to your, 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 pure, your purity. We don't use that term a whole lot with men. Like it's, as a man, my goal is to be pure. We kind of go like, that's a good goal for kids and women. But here Paul's like, this is a really, this is my prayer for you is that you would be pure and blameless. That's, that's like the, uh, this is the negative, like, so if there's all kinds of accusation, you're Teflon. That'd be another way of thinking of it. Like, I'm Teflon in the situation. You can, you can accuse me, but I, I, I can only agree that, uh, to what I did that I know I did. I didn't do that. And so to be a person where, where even accusations don't stick, to have a reputation of purity in such a way that even if, it, if somebody at work says something about you, other people go, I don't think so. I know their reputation. I don't think so blameless. And then finally what Paul says is character. Overall this idea of character is have a reputation as an ethical person who seeks to do what's right in all situations. Now this was this is good news for us. This is Paul's prayer for the guys in Philippi. It is a good prayer for us or checklist for us. This wasn't automatic for them. It's not automatic for us. It was a process for them. And it was a process for us. And what the good news is, is Paul doesn't say, here's my prayer. My prayer is that you rise through the corporate ladder so everyone knows that you're a very competent worker. My prayer for you is that you have ridiculous assets that other people can see, that the Lord's hand of blessing has been upon you because of what you drive and where you live. Because that, to me, would be very discouraging. Because I would never measure up to that. What's great about this is, one of the most interesting things about the growth of the Christian movement in the first century that makes no sense at all, because this happened, and it hasn't, to our knowledge, to historians' knowledge, has not happened in any other religious movement, is that the movement of Christ went past all social strata. In other words, rich people and poor people, people who were owned by other people and people who owned other people, they all came to Christ. Most religious movements start up here, or they start down here, or they start right here. Christianity just swept through all social strata. How come? Because part of the message is this fits everybody's life. And so that list that Paul would give us, the qualities of a, of a follower of God, in our case the qualities of a man of God, 
those are, those are healthy qualities for us to explore. All right, um, you have, unfortunately, because we got a little late start and I went a little long, you have 16 minutes. And like I said, don't ignore that clock. That clock is not correct. You have 16 minutes for the discussion questions that are on the back side. I think they're on the back side of your sheet. Maybe they're at the bottom of your sheet. So um, here's something to do is uh, quickly introduce yourself around the table. Even if you know, if a lot of you know each other, it never hurts to just do a, a recap. And then uh, somebody volunteer to go, I'll just read through the questions. And it's not about conquering the questions. It's about discussing. So don't worry. Just have a good discussion about what was presented this morning. And then, as I said, at a quarter till, I will, I will let you know it's time and you're dismissed. Sound good? All right, go to it.